The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm happy to have Professor Jessica Dixon-Weaver here with me. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate that. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Professor Weaver is Robert G. Story Distinguished Faculty Fellow, Gerald J. Ford Research Fellow, and Professor of Law at SMU Dedman School of Law. She is an expert in child welfare law and public policy, and also writes about race, gender, and family law. Professor Weaver's current research focuses on intergenerational caregiving for children and senior citizens. You might recognize her name from the article Grandma in the White House. Right, that was one of the- Yes, that was one of my, well, my favorite articles to write. And I received a letter from former First Lady Michelle Obama, and that was a highlight of my career. <laughs> I can imagine. So last year, you published a piece on caregiving in Tulane Law Review called The Perfect Storm, Coronavirus, and the Elder Catch. You're also going to be contributing a chapter to an upcoming Routledge book called Reconceiving Equality and Freedom, Vulnerability, Dependency, and the Responsive State. And it sounds like the chapter that's going to be in, in the upcoming book um, sort of continues on from the ideas that you first brought up in The Perfect Storm. Can you tell me a bit about what the concept of the elder catch is? Yes, the elder catch is a term that I use in my article, The Perfect Storm, as well as um, something that I talked about at the end of Grandma and the White House. And it defines the dilemma between adult children who are caring for their senior or elderly parents or or relatives, as well as taking care of their own children at the same time. And it is, you know, based off of Catch-22 in the sense that there usually is not enough time, money, or resources to do both very well. And typically, uh, those who are in the middle class or lower middle class or, or poor really have to make um, decisions as to what to pay for. Um, and they often end up living together in one household in order to um, support one another, both um, financially as well as emotionally, um, in order to keep the family together. But oftentimes, um, anything uh, that may happen, and this is kind of where vulnerability comes into play, if there's some kind of emergency or some kind of loss, job loss, um, any type of uh, act of God, hurricane, uh, tornado, flood um, that sort of pushes the family into an emergency situation, they really are at a loss for being able to um, help themselves uh, maintain. Um, so as we move forward into um, 2040, 2050, where we have uh, the largest number of senior or elderly citizens in existence on the planet, um, and actually the lowest number of children being born, uh, we find ourselves in a situation as to, you know, how are we going to care for our 
elders. Um, who is going to care for our elders and how are we going to pay for it? How do you use vulnerability theory to address this concept of the elder catch? So I use vulnerability theory in much of the same way that other authors use it in the sense that um, it is the price of being human that we are birth, we grow, um, and we age. And at different parts of our journey as humans, we um, are at risk of harm and we're dependent on one another, um, especially within the family. And so I use it as a way to um, frame how how dependence exists within families. And also I use it to look at how does the state and within vulnerability theory, um, we use the responsive state react to situations where humans are uh, need help, where they have been harmed, where there has been some type of emergency or they've been hurt and the state um, is expected to or should step in to assist um, with that individual, with families in general, or with, you know, a town or a city in the case of, you know, um, larger climate emergencies, for example. So I use it to, um, I use the taxonomy of vulnerability theory in both um, the perfect storm and also I used it in Grandma and the White House. The perfect storm is sort of a continuation of Grandma and the White House. When I got to the end of that article, I couldn't figure out how to summarize what I had to say. I really had more questions than I had answers. And so um, I ended up just posing lots of questions at the end for further research and things that we need to think about as we are facing this um, situation where we have a rising number of elders um, that need or that will need care. So one of the things that um, I uh, framed at the end of the grandma in the White House was this term, the elder catch, this catch 22. You know, what do we do if we have to choose between saving for our children to go to college um, versus caring or paying for someone to care for our uh, parent while we're at work? Uh, most of the people who are caught in the elder catch are, you know, late 40s, uh, mid 40s um, into 60s, but they're basically people who are in the prime uh, time of work and where they're reaching sort of the pinnacle of their careers, or sometimes they're starting new careers or re-entering the workforce after their children have gotten out of high school and gone on, you know, as independent adults. So um, it's a time where we're typically trying to save the most that we can for retirement, um, but it's difficult to save when you're spending the, the extra money that you might have on your family member who may or may not have enough money saved uh, or coming in through Social Security to care for whatever health issues they might have um, or to live on their own. So um, I uh, try to use uh, the, the terminology with respect to um, institutional assets. And so in vulnerability theory, at least initially, um, uh, Padar Kirby talks about or framed the, the types of assets. And Martha Feynman sort of extended the types of assets that we have as humans. And so I introduced the term resistant assets. Um, and so just as an example of what is already 
um, there with respect to the taxonomy. Say, for instance, human assets are like your family, um, the people that are in your kinship network that can help you in a time of need. Um, your physical assets would be, you know, your um, things that you physically can kind of sort of touch and feel, your real property that you live on, your home, your car, um, your clothes, things that you use in order to sort of uh, prevent uh, harm or, you know, shelter yourself from weather, that type of thing. Um, what I didn't see within the taxonomy was something that would frame the relationship between the state and um, the people that depended on the state in many instances and how sometimes the state would use some of the assets that we have sort of against us in a way. So, for instance, um, we have the situation where we have extended family networks in many different cultures, um, the African-American culture, Latina culture, or the Latin culture, um, most Asian cultures, um, and most European cultures, in fact, have an extended family network and a system where um, the uh, seniors or grandparents help to, to raise um, their adult children's children. Um, and there is sort of a community that uh, we already have that's built into our families. Um, but, and, and that's cultural, right? Because sort of there's an expectation that that occurs, but in the same way, at least in the United States, um, the private family is expected to take care of one another in such a way that the state does not intervene uh, typically unless there's risk or harm or abuse. Um, but they don't tend to have, or we don't have necessarily a social um, network or a safety net, or even I would say a foundation that would uplift uh, people who are poor, who couldn't, who cannot afford, you know, care for their children, care for their elder um, members of their family on their own, um, something that would sort of assist people who desire to be productive citizens, um, but also need a helping hand in order to um, have a productive life, go to work, uh, get to work on time, or be able to work without having to cut their hours because they're caring for their senior members of their family or their children or both. So, um, one of the things about resistant assets is it basically there, it's a term that identifies um, social constructs, you know, that preserve the status quo. And so we have um, a tax code, for instance, that um, benefits families that are single earner families. So if you have one person working, so typically the man who works and the woman stays home, those families get uh, more benefit out of the tax code than families who are double earners. And so it really is not consistent with um, the percentages of families that do have uh, two two working parents. Um, there's only maybe 24% of our, our population that um, that is able to just have one single earner in order to raise or, you know, care for their families. Typically, you have to have two in order to pay for costs. So, we don't have anything like universal daycare um, uh, that would assist families where two people are working and there would be a lower cost for care. And as we know, sort of the child tax care credit um, that was extended during the American Rescue Act during the pandemic has now just gone back to what it was before. And so now families are not getting that extra $300 to pay for food in instances where there's food insecurity. So there, um, 
resistant assets are those things that are already in place um, that tend to benefit, um, you know, the government because they don't have to extend uh, or it doesn't have to extend itself any further because the expectation is, oh, well, the family will take care of that. And that's their responsibility um, rather than the state's responsibility to extend itself uh, in times of need. I have two questions that come up as you're talking. The first is, is there an opposite or like a counter to resistant assets? And then secondly, could resist are resistant assets something that you would consider to be um, like, I mean, you're, you're calling them assets. So is that something that the state uses as an institution to address its vulnerability? That's a great question. I... You know, in my article, Perfect Storm, I talk about how resistant assets and resilience are can be one and the same. And so in the same way that we use the extended family um, as a resilience factor, you know, to sort of buttress ourselves from harm, we can help each other out in times of need. Um, it's like that same resilience factor is a resistant asset for the state. And so the second question you asked about, well, um, is that a way for the state to, um, I guess, protect itself from vulnerability? That's, I think I, I would probably answer that yes and no. I think it's a way for the state to continue to allocate funding um, in a way that aligns with um, economic and capitalistic growth, uh, really for the wealthy. I think that resistant assets only helps the state continue in the same vein as a an institution that basically values, at least in the United States, um, individual responsibility, um, really um, lack of dependence on, you know, other people and a sort of pull yourself up from the bootstraps mentality um, that with hard work, you can, you can achieve anything. And the reality of that is that it's only true for a very small percentage of our population. Um, and if it were, I guess, more of a um, dominant situation, then there would be um, fewer poor, poor people and more people in the middle class and upper middle class. But we know with respect to kind of wealth allocation in our in our country that there's a small percentage of people that do have wealth that own most of the property. And I think it's like, you know, 10% of those that own the majority, say 75% of our of our country. And those same people are the ones who are putting our bills and, you know, acts in Congress, both at the state level as well as at the um, federal level. So we don't really have a situation where um, the state itself is extremely vulnerable. Um, we have a lot of money that we spend on defense. Uh, we have a lot of money that we spend, and, and some would say on Social Security, but when you think about what the, the percentage that's spent on children, I think it's 7% of our GDP is spent on children, which is very low, considering that we are a wealthy country, one of the wealthiest. Um, we really spend 
on our children. Um, we're in the lowest tier as far as like industrialized countries. Um, and although the Social Security Act does um, prevent a lot of poor people from being poor, I'm sorry, a lot of older people from being poor, it's probably the one thing that um, does assist. I think the issue is that it's a system that we pay into when we're young and working and then we're able to pull it out, you know, or the money is paid out um, as we get older, but it's not sort of allocated to any one person. So as you and I pay our social security, it's not like there's an account for Jessica Weaver that they say, we're going to pull out all the money she, she, she paid in. They're using the money that I'm paying in to pay for the people that now need it. And the expectation is that, okay, as people grow older and we have more people in the workplace, there'll be some money left over for me when I get older. But that that only works when you have, you know, as many people in the workforce as you need to take care of the people that are older. And because we have sort of this unequal um, or not even even number of older people versus the people that are being born and that will eventually be in the workforce, the the there there's... A, a knowledge that this money will run out, <laughs> that there won't be enough to cover everybody. So I think the state um, is is designed in a way, and this is something I address in the, in the perfect storm, because part of the critique that I um, propose within vulnerability theory is that this notion that there's a responsive state at all. Um, because typically um, when we hear about the state responding to emergencies, it's an emergency. We don't really do a lot of proactive, let's help our um, our society be better in 20 or 50 years because we're going to invest in children and we're going to invest in the people who might be living longer, those people who will be uh, centenarians, like they'll get to 100 and then maybe at 70, they still want to do something productive we don't have any way of really pouring in resources to assist those people in whatever they might want to do, including children. Um, and so because the choice has been, uh, we're going to keep doing things the same way that has been done. Um, I, I don't know that that makes the United States vulnerable. I think it just makes us unwise as far as how we operate. But um I wouldn't say we're we're vulnerable. I think that um, that we have many choices that we can make with respect to um, climate change, elder care, and that's kind of the beauty of vulnerability is that it applies to so many different things, um, and that's sort of the wealth of kind of bringing everybody together for this book is that we we all come from different areas of research, but we're able to apply vulnerability to in, in ways that really address the needs of our country on a host of different levels. Um, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's interesting because like in a perfect world, we would have a responsive state that would be, would see a need and, and be able to foresee down the road that, okay, yes, um, say for instance, climate change will, will result in higher sea levels and that will result in, you know, some displacement of people, lots of uh, minorities, lots of poor people. And so what we're going to do now is move them and, you know, do some affordable housing in X place where they will be protected. And we're going to shore up whatever that land is. There's so many things that we could do um, with foresight and with changing direction. 
Um, but we have to have a state that actually does um, believe in climate change and also um, believe that there's a responsibility to assist those people who might be too poor to relocate at a time uh, before, you know, a hurricane does does occur. Um, so in that way, you know, I try to use vulnerability within the area of family law um, because I do think, you know, families, we are the heart of a country. You have to have a family in order to have a productive citizenry. And if we were to provide for families in a way um, where we, where the state could be more proactive about care, um, because I think that's usually for most families, that's what they spend the most money on, either care or education for their children. And for seniors as well, that's what they spend the most money on is either housing or caregiving. Um, and a lot of times caregiving is not paid and it's not paid to women. Um, and we are the ones that actually um, lose in that scenario. So um, if we're able to use vulnerability to try to address this issue of care, I think it could um, it would help our state, I think, become stronger. Um, and we might spend less money on addressing, quote unquote, emergencies and be able to sort of have more what they call, say, preventative medicine, <laughs> but maybe, you know, preventative care or preventative, you know, family. Um, I don't know what the term I would say or what I would create would be, but in a perfect world, we would have a system where not only we had the extended family, which would be, you know, could still be resilience factor res resistant assets with a slash, but we also would have a proactive state um, as opposed to maybe a responsive state, because I think responsive means that you're kind of waiting for something um, to happen in certain instances in order for you to respond. I think, you know, um, the United States needs to be more proactive because we, we have the research, we have the data that tells us what's coming down the pike in 30 to 40 years. And so being proactive and probably in addition to being responsive would um, eliminate a lot of vulnerability, you know, to come in the future. How do you balance writing and thinking about solutions that are tailored for the government and society that we have versus for the government and society that we want to have? Because those are, from what you're, from everything that you've been saying, it makes me think that those are two very separate things. You know, on the one hand, you have to think about what's actually going to work for what we have. And then mm -hmm. on the other, you're like, well, what do we want? And what should we try to make happen? That's a great question. I, you know, one thing I admire about um, the vulnerability theory and Martha Feynman's sort of machine of, you know, um, generating a lot of excitement with scholars around this theory is that it is um, sort of futuristic and it's sort of creating the future that we want. And it's kind of like if you build it, it will happen or you can sort of manifest it in certain ways. But I, I do appreciate just thinking through, you know, how would we set up this structure if we could? I think the balance is just figuring out a way to get your ideas out there. Um, I have been, um, I'm currently the chair of a task force on social justice and equity at SMU, and we're trying to determine, okay, well, how can we best um, improve upon or address issues of social justice and equity in Dallas um, and on our campus? And in 
asking those questions. You know, I've been doing a lot of research and our task force is, is gathering lots of information about what it would take to, to create change and how do we create change? And what I've learned is that there are a lot of think tanks out there that generate white papers or content um, through podcasts or summits or symposiums, um, and they get their ideas out there. Some of them are research scholars, you know, professors, but a lot of them are also kind of political talking heads or people that have made a name for themselves in a particular party or group. And they have these ideas and they push these ideas out and then it becomes law. Like this whole idea of we don't need critical race theory in our in our public schools. And I'm like, well, it was never there to begin with. (laughs) It's only a class taught in law school. So how how did it come to this? It's like these ideas are generated you know, by someone and they're pushed out there. And all of a sudden we have all these states with bills um, that are kind of based on a lie ultimately. And one of the ways that I think we can balance um, what we're trying to do within vulnerability theory and what's happening in real time is that we've got to see it as a way to counter some of the things that are out there um, with respect to, you know, pushing forward, ways in which the state is a withholder of information and ideas and creativity and critical thought. Um, And I think, you know, thinking through vulnerability kind of pushes our minds to think of, well, in a perfect world, we're all codependent. We know this, you know, how can we be better at this codependency? (laughs) Um, And, in that way, I think teaching, learning, um, helping each other, um, that's sort of one way that I see it, there being some connections uh, between what's happening now and and the world we want for the future. Um, a lot of it gets caught in semantics, you know, words. What are we saying? What it really is vulnerability theory? What is critical race theory? And sort of the definition of, you know, what it is, uh, is important to how just a lay person would interpret it, right? And so if someone would say, well, what is vulnerability? And I'd say, well, it's the price of being human. You know, we, we all we all are going to have something that happens to us where we need something at some point. And so really the critical question is, you know, how can we best address those needs um, in a way that works for everybody and not just for the people that have all the resources. Um, and part of that then goes to addressing the wealth gap. Some of that comes, you know, with questions of, well, what about racism? What about sexism? What about all the isms that we have in this nation that we have to deal with? And I think, you know, and I grapple with that often too within vulnerability theory, like, yeah, what about that? That's not going away. Um, but I think, the one thing that at least I get from vulnerability theory when I try to sort of break things down is that it's a way of thinking about certain constructs without the idea of, well, where are my rights? You know, um, am I my, under my bill of rights? Where are all the things that I can do that I'm free to do? Um, it sort of pushes that to the side and says, okay, yeah, you have freedom, But even within your freedom, you're still vulnerable and you're still going to need some help. And so um, I think the idea of needing help is something that 
it goes beyond race. It goes beyond gender or any other identity that we could have because we're human. And if we're looking at it like we're human um, from a from a human standpoint, and even you could say human rights standpoint, that regardless of your gender, your race, your identity, your disability, um, there should be a way for you to get help without you drowning or drowning your family, you know, in debt or not having a place to stay. So um, part of it is sort of getting above the fray, so to speak, of um, all the usual terms that we are accustomed to, because ultimately those are also social constructs, you know, that we have um, lived with for a long time. Um, but when you really strip it away, we're still all human. We got the same kind of bodies. We got the same blood. It all works the same way. Um, all the other stuff is on the outside and it's how we interpret one another, whatever stereotypes we put on one another. Um, you know, obviously it's hard to strip that away, but I think dreaming in a world of vulnerability um, allows you to sort of think um, without those constructs. And then, you know, you can sort of layer them back in in certain ways. Um, but I feel like we have to sort of envision what it is we want to have for people so that we can convey it to the people who are in our Congress in our legislatures, who, you know, people who are our judges, attorneys, um, and I'm, I'm an attorney, so of course I'm a little bit um, maybe biased in the sense that I feel like we are, um, I tell my students, we're special, you know, we actually preserve society um, and we we really push society in many ways, you know, for good or for bad, but, you know, use your powers for good kind of. Um, and so in the way that we construct society, there's a way that we can construct it in a way that you know, it's better, better for us. Um, and why not? Um, and sort of thinking of ourselves as being always bound to these certain um, concepts or these, you know, these four corners, um, we can push the bounds. And so I feel like, you know, that's one way that vulnerability and so the reality of what we have, you've got to figure out a way to, um, to think of things differently because what we've tried so far hasn't worked. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm game for trying something new and always up for sort of a brain puzzle of sorts. And so I think that's kind of the neat thing about vulnerability theory is that we're all in it um, thinking about different ways of going about it. And so something someone else comes up with helps me um, think of something different. And so it's kind of cool for people who are kind of nerdy <laughs> and like to research and write. Do you see institutions as vulnerable at all? Like the family is an institution, the state is an institution, employers? So yes, I do see institutions as vulnerable. I think we're seeing, you know, in real time, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia um, and how democracy is very fragile, depending on who your neighbors are and who can be there to support you. Um, and as countries, you know, they are also vulnerable um, in their in the way that they're supported by government and they people exist, you know, within the country. And so um, can't imagine how frightening it must be for the people of Ukraine to be told to exit. You know, you need to leave now. Uh, where would you go? How would you get there? What would you do once you get where you are? How will you take care of your family? Um, and just uh, sort of a very clear uh, fear that must be in 
all of the people, especially the people that are closest to where all the military are um, put up. And so to think about that from uh, another country's standpoint and to imagine what would that be like for us, um, we saw on January 6th, you know, sort of an attack on our democracy or at least the, you know, um, the way that we've normally um, conducted ourselves with respect to the passage of power um, and how it really was not challenged, you know, for such a long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're all watching on real time as there's a gun, you know, facing in to the halls of Congress. And we're wondering, are we going to see something awful happen um, that will affect us forever, you know, within the United States? So I do think that uh, we do have a fragile state um, in the sense that our machine of sorts that works together, you know, is only as good as the people who believe in it and who uphold um, the intent and the um, the framework and sort of the process of it. And so once that, once the individuals fray, um, then there, and their leaks or cracks, there's definitely ways for people to get in to undermine what that is. And so we kind of see that with voting rights now. Um, and I thought to myself, well, okay, well, for the longest time, our country has been built on this one person, one vote, right? And so what happens when we are a majority minority country and the minorities get to decide who the president is and who's in Congress, you know, what does that mean for um, who has been dominant? in Congress and as presidents, you know, white men, what does that mean for them um, as far as their idea of power? And so I think in many ways, what we've seen in the last uh, four years, five years um, after President Obama exited the White House and President Trump came in is this idea that, that whites feel vulnerable. They feel like our country is gone and we don't have it anymore. Um, and I think in the same way you see vulnerability um, on both sides of, you know, this equation of, you know, who has what in our situation where there's a pie, you know, um, who gets to control it. Um, and so I think anytime you're disrupting, you know, what is the, I guess, norm of power, then there's some vulnerability there because um, there, people will do a lot of things, sometimes illegal things, uh, sometimes unethical things to hold on to that power. Um, and in other instances where there might be a neighbor um, like a Russia to Ukraine, you know, they're trying to take power in a way that um, benefits them. So I do feel like states are vulnerable, um, but in a way that sort of uses vulnerability theory, you know, states are dependent on individuals um, and groups. And so to the extent that we have um, social assets or even as Martha Feynman would say, existential assets or, you know, faith thing, you know, people of faith, how those um, influence, you know, our government, they certainly do. Um, but, you know, how we deal with individuals and groups is important in order to sustain a state. Um, and so when we get vulnerable, then I think the state gets vulnerable too. How about the family as a vulnerable institution? 
It's interesting because we're now in a point in family law where we are talking about, you know, what does family mean? And so that a normative construct of family is, you know, in the United States, it's, you know, mom and dad and and two children. And now that, you know, or since Obergefell in 2015, we have same sex couples, married couples. And so that's a different um, norm than what we've had for such a long time as far as the concept of family, but it still is centered on this dyad of marriage. Um, now we are starting to see, you know, that family can be cohabiting, co- cohabitating couples. It could be a single person adopting children. Um, it could be a single person taking care of uh people in their community that are not their family, but they're people that are close to them and that have supported them. So sometimes it's family is who you make it um, or who you connect with, and they're not always blood relatives. Um, And it's interesting because I think that probably family has always been that way. It's just that we haven't identified or acknowledged those types of families within the law. And so we're starting to see how the law um, or we're starting to see a movement towards um, laws that support the ways in which we choose family as opposed to, you know, sort of the, the, the way that society pushes us to make families. Um, I do see families as being very vulnerable. Uh, oftentimes it depends on your socioeconomic situation. Um, the richer you are, the less vulnerable you are, quite frankly, because you have the resources to deal with uh, drug addiction or an accident or um, or tornado or something, anything that happens where you need insurance or you need an access to a bed or you need health care. Uh, people who have means have a way of getting what they need and being able to rebound quite quickly. Um, those who are poor, of course, don't. So I see our families that are poor. And oftentimes that means percentage wise, proportionate wise, they're more minority families that fall into that category. Um, And um, my thought about that is that, you know, the laws that we pass both on the federal level and the state level either help our families um, rise up out of poverty or they keep them there. Um, And quite frankly, I see a web of laws as we've always had a web of laws that interact with one another. And I always talk about how family law is transubstantive to my students and meaning that there are a host of different laws that come together that affect the family. And that's the way it always will be, you know. Um, And when we have a web of laws that persist um, in a way that keep families uh, or certain families in a certain place, then there really isn't an avenue up for those families. It's just sort of a persistent state of poverty that's passed down generation to generation. Um, In that way, I think families can be, you know, the only thing that keeps those people going is the love and support and emotional bonds um, that exist for families. But at the same time, you know, the state has uh, in many ways, um, kind of left those families out to dry or they put a lot of stereotypes on those families um, as if to say they've created their own bed um, of poverty and there's really no way that the state should have to pay for them to get out of it. 
uh, when in reality, you know, the state has existed in it for a long time in ways that keep families in persistent states of poverty. So part of it is um, having a recognition of, uh, the you know, what does the state mean to families, but also how families really are the rock of our nation. Um, that's sort of stated in um, in Obergefell and in Loving versus Virginia, all of the cases that talk about marriage, uh, how marriage is the key to our society. I would say take marriage out of it and just say family is the key to our society. Whether you're married or not, you know, people, we support one another in families of our choosing or of our making or by blood. Um, so I definitely see families as vulnerable, but I also think families are probably one of the strongest, um, you know, entities that we have as a society. And um, if nothing else, families will persist, <laughs> even if the democracy goes away or whatever type of, you know, country that we might have, there's still going to be family. So um, it, it's, I think it's a double-edged sword with family, but I would, I would err on the side of saying that um, family um, is probably the best source of resilience that we have. How did the pandemic influence your research? So that's a loaded question. I know. <laughs> I would say um, it highlights the importance of the research because it made everything very clear, you know, as far as all the things that, you know, I, we have been talking about and discussing. And in fact, Perfect Storm, I started Perfect Storm uh, in 2014, really shortly after I finished writing uh, Grandma in the White House, I started thinking of what's my next article going to be. And it just took me a long time to work through a lot of different theories. And when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like what I was writing about times 10. That is, you know, I'm seeing this in real time, all these women caring for kids, having to come home, having to sort of figure out, well, how do I get my elderly mom out of, you know, the nursing home where there's, you know, COVID running rampant. It was like a, a I wouldn't say it was like, you know, looking at, you know, a snow globe of <laughs> everything I was talking about. And so it pushed me to finish the paper. Um, and so it, it definitely highlights a lot of the things that I'm writing about in general because of, um, I guess, maybe the immediate need of people and the vulnerability of people within it. The second way I think the pandemic has affected me is um, just my own family, just um, and, and particularly as a female law professor, um, being at home with the family and having all the things be in one space. Um, for the first year, it definitely handicapped me because there's lots of panic. How am I going to take care of my family? What am I going to do? Um, but then, you know, figuring out that, well, this job keeps going. And I was just talking to my husband about it. You know, if we had jobs that said, you know, there's a crisis, it's going around the globe. And so our expectations of you on the job are lower than what they normally would be. And that maybe lasted for a month or two <laughs> until we can figure out a way to get it all done on, on the internet. And then you're sort of expected to do more to stay above the water, right? To keep your head above water. I'm running really fast and really hard in this pandemic. And I think 
as a woman, as a wife, a mother, um, and also a person who is sort of shepherding students through what is probably the largest mental health crisis that they've faced, it has been difficult. And I think it has also highlighted dependency on things that we don't have enough of, (laughs) mental health professionals. And I probably have been singing that since I represented children in court who were abused and neglected, that we don't have enough child psychologists. We don't have enough um, clinicians to help kids and adults with their lives in general. And so we sort of fast forwarded to this pandemic where everyone is in a, in a crisis and we're trying to figure out how can we get more mental health professionals to help our society? So I think that um, the pandemic really highlighted um, that crisis. And I think that crisis is ongoing with our students, both our, our grad students, our undergrad students and our K through 12 students are really facing um, just a different reality that's very difficult to adjust to. So um, those are probably the two biggest ways that the pandemic impacted me. What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? Gosh, let's see. I would like listeners to remember that it's important for us to really examine how we exist with one another and that we do so with uh, a vision of concern and care for one another. I think no matter what term you use, and we're talking about vulnerability theory um, because it is a theory that I think assists us with being more inclusive as to being exclusive um, of people. Um, But I think it is uh, one takeaway would be that um, we all need each other um, in so many different ways. And um, oftentimes it only comes out when there is an emergency or a, a huge issue like the pandemic where, you know, we need each other, we come to each other's aid. Um, and usually it's your neighbor or your friend or your family that helps you. They're closest to you, right? Um, but I think, you know, the other, besides knowing that we need to care for each other and that we need to be thinking about ways to care for one another, um, I think it's also important for us to think about as citizens, how do we use our vote or our voice to advocate for the kind of care we want at the local level, um, at the state level, you know, in our state legislatures with the people we're sending off to Congress? How does my congressperson represent my values? And are you going to fight for the kind of dependency care or, you know, whatever it is that I'm arguing for when you get to Congress to, to, to the Capitol? Um, and how will you support what we want? I think it's, really important for people to understand that it's not just your professors or your lawyers that will push laws, that it's everyday people that can come together and say, hey, I like what that person said on that podcast. And I think I want to form a group in my you know, neighborhood to sort of push a law that I think will be helpful for us. I think that you know everybody can play a part in creating the type of Um, society that we want. We just have to come together to do it. And that's sort of the other part of, you know, vulnerability theory. We can't do it all by ourselves. We've got to do it as a unit and we have to figure out ways to do it um, that perhaps haven't been done before, but I'm confident that our millennial generation is, you know, doing things differently and some, in some ways better than us. Um, 
But I, I hope that people hear um, what we've talked about today and they think of ways that they can incorporate that into their everyday lives. Thank you again for being here today. This has been really educational and helpful for me and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. You gave me some questions to think about. (laughs) Even as we exit, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I need to think about that question a little bit more. So this has been great. I enjoyed it and I look forward to more. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. I'll leave a link to two of Professor Weaver's articles in the episode description on SoundCloud and on Apple. Thanks for tuning in.